Morning, all. Another day in paradise. Thursday, July 21, and the beat goes on. So, so you're saying there's a chance. It's remarkable. Uh, Jesse Felder had a good piece just, I think it was yesterday. Something to the effect, and you would have thought after all the destruction the markets have seen in the last year or so, that speculation would die. But no, no, no. The dream endures. And the market's schizophrenic. One day, one week, it's going to zero, get me out. And then when it reverses course and heads up, so you're saying there's a chance. Um, I don't pretend to be able to call these short-term wiggles and jiggles. It's not what we do. I don't like engaging in picks. I'm trying to get the big picture right. I think we've done a pretty good job of that. Never a dull moment. And um, we've got a great room today. The esteemed Walter Deemer. Really a treasure. Been around, been in the locker room with some of the greats. Long-time um, strateg- uh, technician at uh, Putnam. Worked across the street from me, my Fidelity days. Worked with Bob Farrell. And actually, Walter, one of the good things is, you know, we'll talk about markets and everything, but when we get to the discussion, it might be a good thing to talk about, um, you know, who are some of the people that impacted you earlier in your career and some of the all-time greats that you met because you're kind of a, a bridge to another time and another place, and there's a tremendous amount of wisdom uh, that emanates from uh, those from from those eras that's been lost, I think, um, on the public, and we really, really will benefit enormously uh, from your wisdom. A couple comments on the market, um, you know, Thornton again nailed it. Counter turn rally. You're good at it. Um, clearly A bottom, but not B bottom. And we've talked about it many times. And we're going to have to come up here because you need to talk about this. I keep trying to channel my inner John Roke, reminding people of that great study you did of the 2000 bear market, 2000, 2002 bear market, where despite the market falling 80% of the two and a half years and Client and he was about 47 days. I got the numbers right. Two or 10 counter trend rallies in excess of 15%, and 15 counter trend rallies in excess of uh, 10%. And, you know, counter trend rallies are not a bug, they're a feature of bear markets just to keep people in the pool. In any event, we got another one of these rallies on our hands. I personally did just another counter trend rally. Um, you know, where it peaks, anybody's guess. Um, just scratched a couple points here um, in preparation for this, talking points. Uh, earnings, for those of you to pay attention at home, um, as Michael Belkin was saying in the drum on, drum on most loudly, earnings are falling. Earnings are down in the first quarter. Earnings are now falling in the second quarter. Particularly if you strip out energy, earnings energy are going down. So it's not like we have to theorize they may go down. They are going down. And this is before, you know, whether we're in a recession or not, who knows, but this is before we get into a real big recession. And as the great Michael Cantorus has been in this room many a time, explained to us how the market's unlikely to bottom for a year. So the party's just getting started. The band just showed up, and you already have earnings going down. And the Fed's hardly begun to shrink the balance sheet. So declining earnings, declining liquidity, the great Michael Howe, and it's just amazing. We got so many wonderful people coming in these rooms sharing their wisdom with us. You put the pieces together, and it's like I just—I think the market's going a lot lower. Whether you know the high was yesterday or the high is not going to be in September—that's my deeply held view. I could be wrong. 
Won't be the first time, won't be the last time. Two other points I want to mention. And by the way, if any of you are interested, um, I did put a, a, a deck of slides together. If you're interested in getting that deck, please send a direct message to either myself or to my colleague, Carol Strone, at Carol Strone. You need to give us your email address, otherwise we can't send it to you. We don't know where to send it. So uh, I sent one out I don't know, six weeks ago. It was pretty well received. It's like 100 slides in there. It might be of interest. At any rate, um, one of the other topics, two other topics I want to touch on before we get to Walter. We had Ivy Zellman, who just knocked the ball out of the park last Thursday. That has to be, I think, the most widely listened to space that I've yet done. Between 25,000 um, Twitter listeners and a few thousand more on YouTube. Be sure to subscribe to our YouTube channel, by the way. God, I sound like that's so commercial now. I'm getting good at this. <laughs> all the YouTube video, all, all, all the spaces from like mid-February are on there in chronological order. We missed a few um, prior to that. We didn't record them. We didn't we, they disappeared from Twitter before we could put them up on YouTube. But if you want to go back and listen to some of those spaces, and some of those are timeless. They've got nothing to do with what, where the market was or is. They're just timeless. Dan Weinstein is an example. We hope to get Stan back sometime in the future. But um, Ivy last week, what blew me out of the water, I guess two observations. One, this is really a key takeaway for me, that 24% of housing transactions involve a non-primary buyer. That is to say, someone who's not living in the house. Whether it's a financial buyer like a Blackstone or someone uh, putting up a house by you know, a bill to rent or Airbnb. I'm sure all of us know someone who's now become a hotelier. They, 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 they buy a house and they say, oh, no problem. I'm going to rent this thing out and I'm going to make money in a positive carry. Point of all that is, yes, we do not have a, a emerging crisis in mortgage-backed securities in our 2008. History rhymes. doesn't repeat itself. However... We never had this much non-primary um, activity, meaning that these buyers, these 24% that are non-primary, they're financially motivated. And the other point aligned with that, I do account how uh, the information uh, comes in a much more timely fashion in terms of pricing. You can go on Zillow, Reddit, and all the rest. So that I think the fact that you have such large secondary supply, there's concerns supply and prices turned down as they have. Um, I think it really shocked people the speed with which the housing market falls apart. That's my personal opinion, by I think it's what's happening. And I actually cited some of the cancellation rates that are occurring now in some markets, some of the overheated markets. I believe it was Phoenix, where you said it was up to 35% now or something like that. I think in the last cycle, it was up to 55%. So the housing market's turning down. I have a great um, slide in the deck which shows the extent to which housing inventory uh, houses for sale that are on the market uh, is skyrocketing right now in various markets. And predictably, it's been the most overheated markets out west, places like Arizona and California, where you're seeing the biggest surge in inventory. So I think the housing market's falling apart. And now hey, George. It. George. Jordan, all these people in these rooms are regular, they're friends of the room. Michael Cantor is explaining how this sort of hope methodology, where all kind of starts with housing. And trickles through in terms of uh, ISM, the economy, earnings, et cetera, et cetera. So, the party's just getting started with the earnings downgrades. And you combine that hey, with George. liquidity, uh, I just I just think the, the, the market's going much lower, much lower. And the last hey, thing George. I'll say, George. Bianco, he had some comments the other day talking about the likely course of inflation from here. He's been in these rooms. He reminded remind everybody 
um, a year ago, time period, July, August, September, the easy comps, that is to say, inflation was very low in those months. So even if you think inflation's peaking now, has peaked, um, two things. A, keep in mind, you've got easy comps uh, for the year ago period. So the inflation numbers are still going to look pretty bad for July, August, September. And then more importantly, the issue is not has inflation peaked. The people who frame that argument are the same ones who said it was transitory. Run, do not walk from anyone who says that. These people have no credibility at all. I don't see why you listen to anything they say. The real issue is, as Jim Bianco frames it, is how quickly will inflation come down? If inflation is 6 or 7% by December, even if they raise 175 and get a Fed fund rate of 350 or whatever it is, Rates are too low. Rates are too low. And so George. I don't see the Fed adding liquidity to the system anytime soon. So you have liquidity news tightening combined with collapsing earnings. I don't know. Maybe the market goes up. Stranger things have happened. Sorry to be so left brain dominant and logical, but that might be sense. All right, let's go to Walter. So, Walter, um, I'm really, really glad that you um, are with us today. Um, I know you were challenged technologically, like some of us were for a while. I was trying forever to get you to come in the room, and you were like, well, I, I can't figure out how to do this, and I got my desktop, I got my cell phone, so congratulate well, Walter, and by the way, I just want to let you know, you're in good company. You're not the only person who's had this difficulty, so I'm absolutely thrilled that you're with us today, and um, so I don't know how you want to do this, Walter. Maybe just talk about, you know, maybe your views on the market, what you have high conviction about, what you find interesting, what you find noteworthy. So, Walter, over to you. So, Walter, um, I'm really thrilled that you're here. Um... You've got your wealth of experience and, and, and you've seen so many market cycles. Uh, maybe you could start off by just, um, you know, what, what sort of captures your attention? What do you think about the markets? What do you find interesting? Um, so, Walter, take it away. The floor is yours, Walter. Okay. I make sure you can yeah, hear me. Yeah, we got you, Walter. My bad before. Okay. That's okay. Uh, okay. I'm Walter Deemer. I've been around for a while. I started working for Bob Farrell in 1964 and I was. Uh, in a boardroom at State College, Pennsylvania, during the crash of 62, where I learned more uh, in a week than I did in four years on campus. So, uh, you know, I've, I've been around. Whether I've learned anything from all that, I don't know. But uh, a couple of comments. Uh, number one, that uh, George mentioned the arc, that uh, one day I uh, was looking at the, at the market and, uh, and the market was going down. And I wanted to see how much arc had collapsed, and it didn't. And I said, well, that's strange. It usually leads on the way down. So I started watching it, and it didn't seem to be leading the market down anymore. And then it started actually generating some relative strength. So I said, you know, if the biggest leader on the downside uh, is starting to generate relative strength, maybe that means it's okay for the market. Now, which does not mean you rush out and buy ARC. I just use it as a bellwether. I think, as uh, George mentioned, John Roke had a terrific thing about how many uh, rallies there were when the dot com bubble collapsed in 2000 for the next couple of years, and you can't even find charts to see uh, how things rallied because it, the, the things that uh, collapsed went out of business and there are no charts on them anymore. So, you then, and, and uh, unfortunately, when I uh, moved, I gave I donated all my old chart books to the MTA library, so I can't look them up. But you know, there were a lot of uh, rallies in there as stocks went from. You know, over 100 to zero in uh, chapter 11. Uh, 
so you know you do get you do get rallies and i thought art might have been a bellwether it might still be a bellwether which doesn't mean it's a screaming by that that i get the idea that an awful lot of people want to call a new bull market really quickly that uh, the market does something good for a couple of days and everybody says oh we're in a new bull market and i wonder <clears throat> maybe excuse me maybe the uh Maybe the market isn't going to make a V bottom. Maybe it's not going to go straight up like people would like it to. Uh, maybe it's going to go down and get wherever it's going, and then maybe it's going sideways for a while. And, you know, in the old days, the market went down, built a base, and went back up. So, you know, went back and forth, and it frustrated everybody. Everybody jumped on the rallies, and they got frustrated. And finally, that uh, the market told them that, you know, rallies weren't new bull markets, and then all of a sudden – one of the rallies was a bull market. So, you know, maybe maybe what frustrates people is it doesn't go up a whole lot and make a new bull market. But when it stops going down, maybe it, rather than going up, maybe it goes sideways for a while. And uh, um, one of the one of the, the, the thoughts is that uh, uh, there's a, traditionally the market launches a great, a very powerful advance three months before the end of the recession. And so all you need to ask your economic friends when they come down from their ivory tower, ask them to tell you four months before the end of the recession that the recession is going to end because then you have a month to buy stocks and then then enjoy the rally. Um, so, you know, that's why I think that uh, with the Fed in a tightening cycle and the economy in a recession, um, maybe it uh Maybe it's not ready to go up yet. Yeah, maybe it'll stop going down and go up. Maybe it keeps going down. I don't know. I don't know where the low is. I mean, you know, I have no idea. There, there's, you know, the market can go down anywhere, anywhere it wants. Um, and I think the big question is whether something breaks, and you know, whether that's something in Europe or something in Japan or something in the United States. But uh, you all know the uh, the pressures that are that are in the financial system, and the question is whether. Uh, something uh, something breaks or not. So um, I think the only message I leave you is uh, when the time comes to reshort, you won't want to. <laughs> Just like Walter, when it comes time to buy, you won't want to. And Walter, you, um, talk about leaving a mark. Um, I quote you all the time. I urge everyone to uh, go to Walter's um, Twitter feed and go on his website. He has a delightful book, a short little book, a compendium of a lot of great quotes from um, all-time market greats. Some of them are original on his, others just a compilation of others. And Walter, I, I truly find it an inspiration. I have to tell you, every month or so I pick it up and I flip through it. It just reminds me of how little I know, how uncertain the world is. Um, and I don't know, if you were still doing this professionally, one of the great lines that I use all the time now. It's not an original uh, of mine. It came from someone else. I can't remember whom, but I keep saying, I'm not young enough to know everything. I repeat, <laughs> I, I, I'm not young enough to know everything. Yeah. And that's actually, let me ask you something, Walter, on a serious note, jumping off of that quote, um, you know, there's nothing new under the sun, fear and greed, you know, speculation, wash, rinse, repeat. We change the uh, names of the players, but the game's always the same. However, um, how do you, th being, being sort of a market psychologist, <clears throat> how do you think about the fact that in this post-great financial crisis environment, we've had, you know, this extended up cycle, <clears throat> leaving COVID out for a second, 
which was really kind of a mistake. Uh, you just put your finger over uh, over the chart there, and the you know the feds came in and made sure you recouped all the losses that you had. But essentially, we've had this you know lowest interest rates in recorded history, which has given us the most excessive valuations in history, most excessive, m- m- most widespread public participation. And you know, the, and, and I want shrub the way on this in a, in a few minutes. And so when you think about how they've all been conditioned in Pavlovian style to just buy the dip and not sell, don't worry, it'll come back. Stocks for the long term, 60-40, Jeremy Siegel, please call your office, blah, blah, blah. And, you know, the, the, Mr. Markets taught them the lesson to keep buying every time it goes down. And then one day, it's like the little boy that cried wolf. In this case, it's because of inflation. And so... From my small perch where I sit, but I'm appealing to you because you've forgotten more than I'll ever know. How do you think about the effect of market psychology when you've had this big, big, long, drawn-out upswing? It just strikes me it takes a while for psychology, market psychology to change. And therefore, you know, people will react to these declines differently than, say, they would have reacted to a similar decline maybe 10 years ago. So how do you think about the market regime that you're in and, and how it impacts market psychology, Walter? Well, uh, I, I, the first thing I'm going to say is I don't think human nature has changed. So I don't think psychology has changed. I mean, I know there are a lot of machines involved, but you know, human nature doesn't cha- change. The market goes down and you think something's going wrong and the market goes up uh, and you, you think everything's right. You know, uh, you know, our, our, our wives are probably better than uh, market analysts than uh, we are because uh, when, when a pair of shoes goes from $80 to $50, <laughs> they go out and buy it. They think it's a steal. If a stock goes from 80 to 50 we say, what's wrong with it? So, you know, psychology <laughs> hasn't changed. That's brilliant, Walter, 100%. I mean, psychology hasn't changed. But, you know, I think, as I say, I think the thing that intrigues me is that, you know, the market goes – it starts back up, and then everybody, uh, everybody starts jumping all over the uh, the fact that with the, oh, a new bull market has begun. Like for instance, there was a study out of uh, Jason Goford of Sentiment Trader put out a study that's been widely quoted that two big up days within three days, without a down day in between, uh, leads to higher prices a year from now, which is all well and good. But all that's saying is that the the S and P is going to be above thirty nine uh, fifty. A year from now, but how it gets there, you don't know. And if you go back and look, there was some twenty-plus percent drawdowns on the way in some of them. So you know, the, yes, it was higher a year later, but you know, you didn't go there. You didn't go straight up from for the year. Hundred every, percent. And everybody looks at that and they say, "Oh, good, we're, we've got a green light for the next year." Not, not true. Yeah, and also you got to consider context because in similar fashion, I'm sure you've seen the same charts that I've seen, Walter. You pull out some of these Ned Davis charts or whatever. It's all the same stuff. And they say, well, you know, every time the market's gone down 25% and consumer sentiment is bad and blah, 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 you know, eight out of the last nine times the market's gone up on an average return of 27%, blah, blah, blah. But um, uh, what's interesting is you look at all those past times. Now I'm going to try to put some of the fundamentals on top of it. At each of those lows, you were in the depth of recession and the Fed started pumping like crazy. The context is completely different. You got the market down. The recession's just getting started. And the Fed is hell-bent to putting their foot on the accelerator on the tightening. So I just think, you know, people 
badly. Walter, you're a pro, so it must make you cringe sometimes. You see people misusing uh, sentiment. They misuse a technical analysis. You know, you get your crayons and a ruler out, and people know 0.618 and Fibonacci, this and that. And there's so much amateur hour stuff going on. I just, it's, it's, you know, I hear the term democratization of finance. And it's, oh, no problem. Hey, I got a, I got a ruler and crayons. Yeah, Deemer does that nice. I can do it too. So, I mean, Walter, how would you, what would, I guess my frustration under all that, about all that is how would you comment on some of the analysis, if you can call it that, it's being charitable, analysis that you see in the public square on Twitter and elsewhere. I mean, back in the day, it was more the purview of the pros like you. I don't mean to make it an egalitarian thing, but I see a lot of amateur stuff, and I just I just find it truly cringe. And I'm just sort of curious: Do you see a lot of misapplication of technical analysis or technical analysis that makes little sense to you these days? Yes, that's why I use the mute button on Twitter a whole lot. You know, if somebody comes out with opinions and uh, doesn't back it up with anything, or they back it up with something screwy, I just mute them. You know, it's funny you see that in the technical side, you see it on the fundamental side as well. I mean. And, 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 and I think, I go come back to this term democratization of finance. Yeah, it's all well and good to empower people so they can make their own decisions. But it's like anything. You got to put the time in. You got to put the work in to know what you're doing. And I, I think you know, individual investors are just blowing themselves up by, um, uh, you know, thinking, they, you know, don't worry, I can do this at home. No problem. I got this. I watched the YouTube video. Oh, okay. Or you sign up for one of these trading rooms $99 a month with discord service and you got some yahoo with a baseball cap on backwards say hey bro you know what's going up i mean it's just this is going to end very very badly walter could you speak to um the public has hardly sold anything if you look at we had last year it was a trillion in shrub you got to get in here uh we had was over a trillion or trillion two of inflows into funds uh this money has net come in this year despite the schmeising of the market Kathy Wood's getting money in, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So when you see the public uh, still holding the line, in fact, adding in the face of a decline like this, how do you react to that? What does that tell you, Walter? Uh, it tells me the public has some learning to do. And the, the thing that I find interesting is all of a sudden there are all alternatives. I mean, I live in a senior living community and it's, it's upscale and the, the people here are more successful investors than I am. Uh, but they're all looking at interest rates and they're starting to get interested in the, in the fact that you can now get like almost two and a half percent on a 90 day T-bill. So there is an alternative. No, it won't keep up with inflation, but plus two and a half percent is better than a minus in the, in, in the stock inequities. Yeah, I, I keep saying when I'm in my rants, I go, Tina is dead. FOMO is dead. Um, you know, Tina is dead. Um, and uh, there's a great, again, if anyone wants to deck, it's, in, it's one of the charts. I basically just steal stuff off of Twitter, but I people pay, people want the curation. There's a great one, which I'll, I'll put it up in the nest, actually. It shows uh, the number of stocks in the S&P that are yielding uh, more than bonds. And it was a big number before because bonds yielded nothing. And now it's a little number. I know some people say, well, George, that doesn't include the stock buybacks. So that's a form of, of, uh, of return to investors as well. But just leave, ignoring that, I mean, there is an alternative now. There is an alternative. And I, I think you're totally right. Um, so, so, Walter, you say so, so they've got more education to, to do here. So what does that mean to you? We, the, we haven't seen the low on the market yet. Like put some, put some meat on those bones, please. Well, I don't know whether we've seen the low, but uh, we haven't seen the new bull market start. 
you know, as I say, the thing that intrigues me is that maybe uh, rather than going straight down into oblivion, uh, which is still a risk, uh, maybe we go sideways for a while. I mean, the thing that would frustrate a lot of people, I suspect, is if the market goes sideways for six months, 12 months, something like that, as I say, until the market senses the end of the recession. And as you say, the Fed, you can't, the Fed doesn't have a magic bullet this time so that they can't come to the rescue. Not yet. I mean, well, that, and they're not going to. Yeah, that would just really frustrate everybody. If the market just did nothing, it would frustrate, you know, the growth guys who, who are just, you know, they're pure momentum players and they need more liquidity to uh, make money. They'll just start bailing eventually. And then the, uh, the guys who were short, the wise guys like me, will get frustrated because they're not making money on the short side. Just everyone gets pissed off and maybe we get apathy and volume just trickles off. That's, I mean, usually I mean, at, at the bottom, like nobody really, don't you have to have like, you know, apathy, dejection, you know, depression, fear and loathing at bottoms. I mean, maybe it doesn't get that dire, but, when the markets don't bottom when people are, are are jumping on every rally to say, Oh, it's here again. I mean, the lessons shall be presented and she'll learn. So, I mean, just behaviorally, don't, don't you think we're not, I mean, we, I guess what you're saying, Walter is it could be a bear market in time, not price, but would you agree that this is not the bottom though? Yeah. It, it's not the time. It's not the time to buy. I mean, the, the thing is you're, you're right. Tina is dead. FOMO isn't dead yet. FOMO will be do- dead later, but FOMO isn't dead because just look at what's going on now. Everybody is celebrating the birth of a new bull market. You're right. Maybe FOMO has, FOMO has ingested the rat poison, but it's still writhing around on the floor. It doesn't quite have to get up and go. It used to have. So maybe FOMO is still with us. So, you know what? I want to open this up because we've got some really me, smart. Sorry, just, go, ahead, go, go ahead, Walter. Go ahead. Here's, go ahead. I mentioned that ARC was leading on the downside. It topped out in uh, uh, February of 2021. Uh, but the fangs didn't top out until much, much later. So it may be that uh, the thing that would frustrate people is if the fangs underperform for a while and uh, the, the crap just goes sideways. But, you know, I suspect that the wringing out of the excesses clearly, clearly, clearly art has wrung out a lot of the excesses, whether it's run, wrung out enough of them. I don't know, but it's wrung out a lot. I mean, the thing hasn't gone down 70 percent for nothing. Yeah, no. But, so the, but, the, but the fang stocks, the fang stocks you know, are still, uh, you, know, you know, motherhood and apple pie. And that uh, you just wonder whether. Um, you know, the, the unwinding of the excesses in the fang stocks might just play out for quite a while. That would be something. So, Walter, just maybe before we go to some questions, uh, sectorally, um, is there any dispersion, anything catch your eye? Like you mentioned that fang stocks don't look terribly interesting to you on the long side. Um, are there any sectors that stand out good or bad to you that you think might be, you know, obviously healthcare has been doing well. Some of the defensive sectors have been doing well. Um, are those areas that you would still you you'd, you'd argue for, or, or or someone who's wants to put money in the market? Like, what are your picks and pans right now? What do you feel strongly about, good or bad? Well, traditionally, George, the the the, the, the leaning edge of the market that comes out. Uh, the two groups that lead uh, uh, that are early leaders are traditionally healthcare and financials. So you keep an eye on them, and they're obviously different financials and stuff like that. And uh, healthcare seems to be doing better than financials. And also, since healthcare does well, then biotech tends to lead the Nasdaq. But you know whether that's whether it's too early to get interested in them or not. I think you know they're on your watch list certainly. 
and, and, and leaning quite I mean, I look at I look at the her absolutely horrific performance of the financials, and to me that's a big warning sign. What do you make of what do you make of the financials yourself, Walter? Uh, they're not they're not doing their traditional early leadership yet. A lot of people are trying to wish them up, but uh, you know I think it takes time. And you know it uh, you know maybe they're they're trying to stabilize, but uh, as I say, financials usually. Uh, are early leaders and they're not early leaders yet. Now, Walter, the advanced decline line, I don't know how much you pay attention to that. You know, that was acting horribly the last month or so. It's bottom bats turned up a little bit, but, um, you know, I, I guess kind of, I'm sort of from Missouri on a lot of this stuff right now. We're kind of betwixt and between. Um, I, you know, nothing goes down in a straight line. Not even Enron went down in a straight line. Um, so, like I totally get what you're saying, you know, Arc was 36, now 48, or whatever it is. But you know, if if Arc was to go to a new low, um, would you be changing your tune? If Arc, start, if Arc started uh, generating uh, uh, relative for, uh, relative strength, I would change my tune. I'm not changing my tune. I'm just looking at I'm just looking at it as a bellwether. Yeah, I'm saying yeah. So I'm saying, what if Arc? What if this is just, okay? So let's say Arc turns down. Let's say next thing we know, Arc's down ten points from here, and it's challenging its recent low. Arc breaks to a new low. Would that? What? I, I guess what I'm trying to get at is Walter. What would it take for you to get more negative on the market? Is my is my question? It, you know, Arc going to new low obviously would be one thing. Just yeah. uh, and and just more selling pressure than you're getting at the moment. If selling, if selling, if you get another, if you get another really bad down day, a big a ninety percent downside day where ninety percent of the volume is in de- in declining stocks, you know that would be an indication too. I would think. Got it. All right, let's go to questions now. Um, so we've got a really good uh, bunch of uh, folks up here, and I want to turn to my good friend Shrub. Uh, Shrub, good to see you. Um, the floor is yours. I yield. I, Shrub, uh, have a question for Walter. Hey, uh, George. Hey, Walter. Uh, hey. Son of Walter, always. Um, so, look, we, we've had a bit of a bottoming process, like you said, in ARC, and biotech was the same. And it looks like uh, we're doing the same with some FANG stocks like uh, Netflix, Facebook. They, they, they're forming, like, small bases. Um, and obviously, you know, I, I'm, I'm of the school that uh, George was mentioning. You know, the flows that came in are so big to start with that I do think we're going to have a leg down further at some point. Um, I'm also of the view that, you know, the worst case scenario, like you said, is a range-bound market. So, uh, you know, if the NASDAQ stays from 11,000 to 13,000 or 12,500 for a few months, then everyone blows up. So kind of the question is, because I know you look at these periods of basis, and typically in your experience, how long would a base take to form that we can feel comfortably saying, you know, that's we're ready to for liftoff? Because right now we're just seeing some two, three month bases. And, you know, I, I've seen enough bases to know that's not really enough to, to be the start of a new bull market. But just curious to hear your thought. Well, a base can last uh, as long as you want it to. If, if you want a clue. Uh, there's a website called Deemer Market Memos, DeemerMarketMemos.com, where all the memos I wrote uh, during my career are uh, posted on a website. 
So if you want to see what I was thinking in 2001, 2002, 2003, you can go back. I don't, I don't know whether I'm going to be terribly embarrassed if you do that or not, but at least it'll show you what, what I was thinking. But I think, as, as has been mentioned before, the fact John Roke has pointed out, you know, on, during the most horrendous you know, bear market you know, in the NASDAQ in 2000 to 2003, there are all sorts of counter-trend rallies. Yeah, and so, in terms of duration for a base, because, you know, even uh, with, I mean, I've, I've done enough commodities to see that, you know, some bases could last years. So just curious to see, uh, you know, that distribution into forming a base, you know, what's the science to see that we're not just in a range bound market and there's like a new, uh, uh, you know, there's like a new bull market, because I see you mentioning sometimes the 90, you know, 85, 90% upside days and all that stuff. So What's kind of your rule of thumb that we're we're blast off into a new bull market or new trend? Uh, to me, a new bull market is signaled by breakaway momentum, and that's where you get uh, advances one point ninety seven times declines over a ten day period. If you Google breakaway momentum, it'll take you to a paper on my uh, website where. Among other things, you'll find the 24 times it's been generated since 1945. And the thing is, a lot of people talk a lot about, a lot about breath thrusts. And I would have thought back in May we would have all learned our lesson because everybody's jumping aboard the three-day breath thrusts we were getting. And the thing is, you get, you get these things you know, all over the place. Sometimes they mean something, sometimes they don't. Uh, the only breath thrusts I trust are breakaway momentum, which is 10 days, uh, and uh, the Whaley breath, breath thrust, which is uh, a five-day breath thrust. And I mentioned uh, on Twitter last night that uh, you, could, you could possibly generate that if you had 2,100 net advances today, today, uh, today, which you're obviously not getting, so you're not getting a Whaley breath thrust. So whatever what you've gotten here uh, uh, so far isn't it. What you do is the market generates awesome power. And when it generates awesome power, that's the beginning of a move. Because the, the biggest overbought happens at the very beginning of a move. So this, the, the, the force of that overbought tells you how strong the move is. Thank you so much, Walter. And yeah, and if, and if you're 10 days late in the bull market, who cares? Thanks. Hey, Walter, what do you think of... Um... What do you think of uh, energy stocks? Uh, there's, you know, they were they got overextended. Everybody loved them. Now they've corrected. Now they'll probably uh, uh, have another leg on the upside, but it may take it may take a while to uh, a while longer to wash out the uh, the enthusiasm built up towards them. So do do you think structurally they're still okay? They're the only thing in an uptrend. And what would they have to do to show you? I mean, is, is it just a question that they'd have to fail further for you to become more structurally negative? Yeah, they'd have to fail further. The only thing I'd mention, though, is I mentioned that uh, healthcare and financials are the, traditionally the most leading areas of the market. Regrettably, energy is the most lagging area of the market. So that uh, it's you know, correction is not surprising because it was at the it's the caboose on the train, right? Uh, what, what, so it it it, it uh, being being the last, uh, it may have a while. Got it. That's great. 
Okay, let's move on. Uh, thanks for that. Let's go to um, uh, Nitin. Nitin, the floor is yours. Uh, hi, George. Hi, Walter. Uh, thanks for letting me speak. So uh, I've been following Walter for quite a time, and uh, he has been uh, very interesting insights. Uh, my question to uh, Walter is, uh, uh, do you foresee any kind of uh, Black Swan event again coming up? Uh, because I do a lot of studies. Uh, it's a scientific study uh, using cycles, uh, technicals, and astrology, being a financial astrologer. And I've been, uh, in March 2020, uh, I've been uh, forecasting about the big event, 24th FAB event. Now I'm seeing another events which is uh, coming from 29th July to 4th of August. We can see some kind of big mayhem is coming uh, between these days. And once Jupiter uh, turns direct later, uh, retrograde in the end of the this month, we will see another kind of sell-off across all asset classes. And especially the third week of August onwards, I see tech stock uh, melting down. So any kind of such events correlate you, you see coming up in the next six months, because I see the big bottom forming in the markets in 2024, uh, January, February. That time is the where where could be a very big bottom of the market is. You know, let me just let, let me just say that very interesting. Let me just say that you know black swans by their def, by definition are un unpredictable. That they're out there, but you don't know which one it's going to be. And the other is this is a stage in the cycle where they're more likely to appear than uh, other stages. Okay, cool. Got yeah. it. Thanks for that, Nathan. Uh, let's go. Let's go to my good friend Jeff Garbaz. Jeff, uh, floor is yours. You got a question for Walter, Jeff? Yeah, I do. Um, so everyone's kind of making a big deal about the 50-day moving average. Uh, the S and P went above it two days ago. Um, what's your What's your thought process on moving averages? Uh I think that they're nice to look at, but I I don't really uh, I don't really uh, pay much attention to them for timing because the thing is that you know going above a fifty day moving average sometimes it's a buy it's, it means it's a buy and sometimes it means it's it's not so I haven't uh, personally I haven't had a lot of success with moving averages uh, uh, I just you know watch them to see whether they're working or not. So that that brings the question then. Um, so what is your favorite, let, let's call it trigger tool that you would use um, within you know the mix of the technical indicators that are out there? What's what's your favorite um, tool? You know that's a good question because I don't think I have one because you know, they they change from time to time. You you can't use oversolds to 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 do do to do a pick a bottom because. You know, the market gets the most oversold at the bottom, but you never know how much how oversold it's going to be. Uh, divergences sometimes they work, sometimes they don't. So that uh, you know, I, I kind of look at the more uh, macro view than than that. I'm sorry. So, what do you think is not working now in the environment that we're in? What what would you avoid um, from some of the stuff that you just mentioned? I mean, what what would you stay away from? Um. 
I, I, well, I, you know, I've always worked for institutional uh, people, so I never really got involved in the short term. So that uh, you know, I'm not really uh, expert on short term. That uh, I would not, I would not get involved in short term breath thrusts. Uh, I would not get involved in uh, uh, just because it breaks a moving average is good. Uh, sometimes divergences are good, and sometimes they're not. So I think the the the, the key is is. Uh, when there is a bullish divergence, whether the, the the stock or the market responds to it or not. Yeah. So this is the last part of the uh, of, of what's kind of gone on here. So coming into this week, last week four of the five days were losers, and then after the first two days of the week, it was got to five to seven, um, and then we had another up day. But looking back since April we've only had three positive weeks in like the last 15 weeks. Um, and to your point, I agree with you a thousand percent about this idea that these, these couple day moves, I mean, I did a talk with George the other day and I called it the more things change today, more they stay the same. I don't see anything different about really what's happened this week than, uh, than any other time period since we started this in April. Do you, do you see anything really different that's happened this week? Uh, compared to the other up weeks we've had? No, not really. And I think the, the classic thing was one in May where we got three really strong days. Uh, we had three 80% up days in a row, which is very uh, – 80% or more of the volume was in advancing stocks. Everybody uh, got all excited, and then the market just, just fizzled. So that you know, compared to the rally in May, this one you know, arguably is no stronger and it might be even a little weaker. I would also mention when you say a whole bunch of down weeks that I remember back, I remember back in 1974 and that was the uh, last phase of the 73, 74 bear market. And if I remember correctly, the market went down every single day in the month of August, except the final trading day of the month. And we all said, well, how can it get worse from here? And then if you look at the chart, September was a disaster. So one, so one of my, one of my, the people I work with, Tony Tabell, always referred to that as awful August. Hey, Walter, can you, um, you know, uh, you got a few years on me. Uh, I joined Fidelity as a summer student in 1980, and I can remember the old timers talking about what it was like in the 70s. You, know, you come into work every day, you'd expect the market to go down every day. Fidelity was losing money, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Could you just explain to us what was the mood like back? back in the day when things were really bad because uh, it's you know we're all human if you haven't lived it it's just sort of an abstract concept but what was it what was it like that what was it like coming to work in an environment like that <laughs> that was it was not fun because you all knew you, you, you all, as you say people came in expecting the market to keep going down the market kept going down you know you're losing your your assets of fund managers i was at putnam at the time and Fund managers, they were losing assets all the time. Putnam was losing assets. Um, what uh, what happened? There, we we had two indicators at Putnam that uh, usually called uh, you know a bear market bottom. Uh, one one was the uh, first class plane travel, and you would get a memo uh, saying we've got to cut expenses, so you're no longer allowed to fly first class. You have to fly, fly in the back of the plane from now on. And the other, which was even better, was what we called the human sacrifice indicator. Somebody that was not performing well got fired right at the bottom. 
And for example, in July of 1970, the market, the market was bottoming and two of the fund managers got fired. And you know, that was the bottom. So the human sacrifice the, the indicator. Human is sacrifice indicator. So I'm just trying to think right now in current circumstances. I don't know. I mean, no, we're nowhere close to that. Nowhere close to that. Um, yeah, wow. I mean, give you an idea of what it was like. And, and this, this story was told to me by, by two people who swear is absolutely true. During the height of the Nifty 50, uh, uh, craze in the in the early 1970s when you had the 50 growth stocks going up and everything going down. That John Neff uh, uh, at Windsor Fund, one of the greatest investors ever, came within one quarter of being fired because of his lousy performance. Wow! Wow! Hey, hey, uh, George, I got a I got a quick question. I, I I love hearing these stories like back in the 70s. I was 10 years old, and like you, I kind of started in the 80s. I was, I'm an 86 guy. Um, I would love to hear from Walter um, how he thinks the buy side has changed from the time he's come into the business to where it's at now. I'm sure he's got a couple, you know, like big concept ideas of what, what has changed on the buy side and kind of for the better, for the worse. I would love to hear that being kind of a historian of the market. I, I think it's changed for the, for the worst. And that uh, I think that uh, somebody at Fidelity told me you know, some time ago that uh, we, we now have to, to, to we can't deviate from sec, the uh, sector weightings in the index. That's by more than 2%. So if you were really, really bullish on energy, you can't over, you couldn't overweight by more than two, 2%. Back in the old days, Fidelity was the Wild West. It was fun. It was exciting. And I remember uh, that I was at the Contrary Opinion Forum in 1966. I had just started working for Jerry Sy, who had come from Fidelity. And Mr. Johnson, the Mr. Johnson, uh, the first uh, Mr. Johnson, uh, was a speaker. So Jerry wrote me a note of introduction and I go up there, you know, very young at the end of his presentation and I'm waiting for the crowd to back away. And somebody asked him, uh, Mr. Johnson, you know, you have, you know, eight or nine mutual funds now, you know, how do you keep them all on the same track? And Mr. Johnson said, we run fidelity as close to a complete state of anarchy as possible. That's love the that. way it used love to be. That. Love that. But by the way, that is so diametrically opposed to fidelity now. I mean, it is so corporate. It is so buttoned up. It is so don't take any risk. I mean, that's the fidelity that I grew up at. That's the fidelity that I love. Um, yeah. yeah. Wow. That's amazing. And, uh, the, and the thing is, the other I can't I can't speak to the other other shops in the street, but I suspect everybody else has done the, the same thing. They're either, you know, actively prohibited, specifically prohibited from take, making a big bet, or they're they're closet indexers. Hundred percent. And in the old days, in the old days, if you liked energy, you you go twenty five percent energy. Right. But now you know S and P has a little weight in energy, so you can't go twenty five percent energy. Too big a bet. Too big a risk. Right. Hundred percent, hundred percent. Hey, hey, George, can I ask one last question and then I'll I'll be done? Yeah. Okay, um, Walter, how do you think um, over like since the seventies, um, 
the buy side has changed and how they react to earnings. I, I'd love to hear your your thoughts on that. Um, like how, how companies are reacting to earnings from the 70s to where we're at right now. Well, in, in, in the 70s, somebody, uh, earning, uh, a company would come out with a lousy earnings report and would so, sort of go down every day for a couple of weeks and work it into the system. Now it goes down for a couple of seconds. It's instant reaction. I have no idea how the market decides that after a bad earnings report uh, comes out that the stock is is now worth exactly 12.7% less and it instantly starts trading there, but it does. So in the old days, you had trends that lasted for weeks. Now you have trends that last for hours. So Walter, so Walter, this idea, piling on Jeff's question, this this idea nowadays where you know, a company comes out with bad numbers, bear earnings, but they're not as bad as expected. So they're not as bad as the whisper number and the stock goes up. It's like everyone's gaming the system. Like did that, did that sort of thing, like earnings were bad, but not as bad as expected. Therefore the stock goes up, stock would go up. Would that type of thing happen back in the day or, or no, it wasn't that complicated. Uh, it was on a macro basis because the old saying is in, in, in a bull market, stocks don't go down on bad news. And in a bear market, stocks don't go up on good news. So in a, in a bull market, a company would come out with a lousy earnings report and it wouldn't go down. In a bear market, a stock would come out with a good re- earnings report and it, it, it wouldn't go up. Right. Walter? I will also, I will also mention that I took it upon myself uh, to mention about our beloved stock, Twitter, that uh, I put out on Twitter that said uh, a conversation between Elon Musk and his accountant. And I said, Elon, this was the day before the earnings came out. Elon, Elon, how much did we earn in the quarter? What were our earnings in the, in the last quarter? And the accountant says, what do you want them to be? So earning the, 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 the Twitter now, uh, Tesla now comes out with earnings, 227. So I come back and I complete the finish, go on with the conversation. Eon says, well, how about 227 a share? The account says, oh, the only way we can make that number is for you to sell some Bitcoin. And Eon says, so how much do I need to sell? Right. 100%. I am a big, I am a big skeptic of earnings because that they can be anything the company wants them to be. Yep. Hey, Walter. Uh, I yeah. So, so Jeff, let me go with it. So, Walter, could you please? Um, you know, I, I've read, I've read all your, I've read a lot of your stuff, not all your stuff. I think it'd be helpful. One of the stories would be useful. One of the examples that I love would be helpful for the invest, average investor in the room. Could you play, explain the difference between a company and a stock, and specifically, I think your story of McDonald's and what happened at Putnam. Um, how the market, you know, had discounted McDonald's uh, just to set you up, tee it up for you. For everyone who's not familiar, in the early 70s, McDonald's was a tremendous growth stock, sold at a big PE. And so, but didn't mean it was a good stock. So like when people like Kathy Woods go running around, say, buy growth, buy growth, it's a question what price. So, Walter, could you, could you talk about your uh, sto- your story with McDonald's and, and, and how that might be instructive for current circumstances? I, I can, and be, but before I do, I can uh, uh, let me just say that the if you go on if you go if you go on Amazon and look and look up when the time comes to buy, you will want to. Amazon gives you a free look in the front of the book, 
And the last three pages of the free look are the story of McDonald's. So it's got the chart and it's also got the memo I wrote. That's but basically, great. in in, in, 19, in 1973, McDonald's was selling at 75 times earnings. So one of the great nifty 50 stocks uh, selling at like 75, $78 a share. For the next eight years, earnings per share compounded at 25% per, per year, compounded for eight years. They never missed a quarter. And the stock went was cut in half and at the low it was selling at eight times earnings and the bottom line of the story is that Putnam the nifty 50 shop was buying it at 70 at 75 times earnings and I was on Wall Street week on February 29th of 1980 the only time Wall Street week was ever broadcast on February 29th and I I asked to I would wanted to get clearance to mention some of the big growth stocks uh, that I liked them. And I got a, a reply back. You cannot mention McDonald's because the advisory company manages pension fund money. The, the, the advisory company has a sell program in them. So that Putnam was buying it at 75 times earnings and then selling it at eight times earnings. And the point being is a fundamental analyst in 1973 pre, you know, comes in and says, you know, earnings are going to grow 25% per year compounded for eight years. What is great company but you didn't buy the company you bought the stock and the stock went down you know that's, so, so the question is you know there is a limit to what you pay this was this was Cassie's downfall she she obviously I idea she identified what to her were the greatest most exciting most disruptive companies in the world but she didn't say there is a limit to what price you will pay for that Hundred percent, and and people who, one of the things I really uh, gets my back up. People say, "Well, I'm buying the company; the valuation doesn't matter." Um, in 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 you know, the thing is, you you start when you start paying fifty, hundred times earnings, thirty times sales. I mean, you're guaranteed basically law of large numbers that you're not gonna. It's gonna be a crappy investment. People just don't get that, and that's part of the whole. One of the many problems um, with the democratization of finance, so to speak, valuation matters. But we've been in this regime where the cost of money is free. Valuation hasn't mattered. And so as the cost of capital gets reset, um, these things get repriced downwards. And unfortunately, I think a lot of people uh, are getting a very expensive lesson. Uh, hey, Walter, I want to ask you about some of the other few, so some of my other favorite gems that you've, you've put out. Um, so I'm just gonna, we'll just do a little, play a little uh, word game here. So talk about, um, here's one for you. When the time comes to sell, you won't want to do that either. What did you mean by that? Well, I was, work, I was working at Putnam, and uh, I was, uh, one, 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 once upon a time, in the market staged a, a correction. And unfortunately, I had foreseen the correction, so uh, uh, I didn't make a big deal out of it. I thought it was a correction, but the, the, the fund managers... It's the first day down, next morning they come into my, my office and say, is it time to buy yet? And I said, no. Next day, the market goes down some more. They say, is it time to buy yet? And I said, no. And they kept doing that until I finally wanted to get rid of them. So I said, when the time comes to buy, you won't want to. You know, which means when the market, when the market makes a bottom, one of, the, one of the quotes that I ran across the other day, Bear markets do not bottom on good news. Right. Right. So basically, you have in a bear market, you have to see bad news and just see what the price action is in response to the bad news. Is that, is that what you're saying? 
Precisely. Yeah, and I, I think you know, and, yeah, and, and you're also familiar with, I don't know if Stan Weinstein invented it or he borrowed it from somebody else, but it, it, a line related to that, I'm sure you're familiar with the line, it's not the news that counts, but it's the reaction to the news. Maybe that was just exactly. a minute. I mean, Precisely. And by the way, that was probably the greatest Twitter space you ever did with Stan. Well, you know, thank you for that. And I hope we'll have Stan back again before too long. Um, and by the way, whatever problems you had with your cell phone, don't worry. Stan was much worse. At least at least you got that on him. All right. So now we're going to talk about Deemer's Law of Perversity, the vicious, nasty step beyond contrary opinion. I quote, the stock market will do whatever it has to do to embarrass the greatest number of people to the greatest extent possible. Could you elaborate on that, Walter? I don't think it needs that much elaboration. It's just what would what would what would frustrate people, and that's why I think you know if the if the market uh, if the market stops going down but it doesn't go straight back up, that would frustrate everybody. It, it seems to me. There you go. You know, you've got a, you know trading range, and, and, and somebody is is as remarked the trading ranges are horrible to live through because it keeps you know, wanting to go up and then it stops, and then it keeps wanting to go down and then it stops. So they're they're. Yeah. Um, you know, it's horrible. You know, it's funny because uh, I was in the Japanese market in a big way in the 80s, and that's Bay Nice Shrub's been in the market for a while. That was Japan for so many years once we got into a bear market. I mean, it's the bear market in time where there's no trend, and it just chews everybody up, and it's just horrible. And then volume falls away and apathy sets in. That's a bear market. This is not a bear market. That's a bear market. All right, here's another one for you, Walter. Um, and we, we could update this one. Quote, Extremely crowded trades rarely work extremely well. I think that one speaks for itself, too. Did we've, now, all been, now oh, we we've all been there and done that. If we're in 2022, wouldn't we amend that to say extremely crowded Twitter mob recommendations rarely work extremely well? I mean, I kind of noticed. You must, too, because Twitter is a great laboratory experiment. It must be funny for you. I, wherever you see a Twitter mob, it's sort of like that's the consensus trade. And it may not fail immediately, but if you just like you know put it aside and check back within thirty days, it usually is blown up. So like, do you get like? So I'm, I'm I'm teeing it up, but like, do you get using this this philosophy about avoiding you know crowded trades? Do you employ this at all, Colin, when you're looking on Twitter? Does Twitter enable you to get a good sense of what consensus is? Absolutely, and also the institutional surveys. It's like right now that I guess the most crowded trade uh, right now is long the dollar. Yeah, that, which that, of course, which of course, no, it's crazy that you know to say that you know uh, the the dollar is going to go down at some point and that uh, some of these other currencies are going to go up. I mean, it, it boggles the mind, which is why it might just work, might not work immediately. But there's your crowded trade. All right, here's another one for you. Uh, again, it speaks for itself, but I'm actually going to want you to talk a little bit about the man. The stock market is the creature of man that has most humbled him. And you attributed that to Alan Shaw of Smith Barney. I knew Alan when I was a youngin. Um, could you talk a little bit about Alan? What did you learn from him? What was special about Alan? Um, Alan had some good, good insights. I didn't work with him quite that closely, but uh, uh, it, it's funny because in my, in my, in my youth, I used to keep uh, pointing figure charts on everything on the New York stock exchange. And it turned out that uh, I, I, I think Alan, uh, the point and figure price sheets came out from an outfit called Morgan Rogers and Roberts over on Broadway in lower Manhattan. And they came out after the close and I used to go over there and pick them up so I could do them that night. 
And uh, Alan says, you know, I was over there, too, in that office. That <laughs> We were the only ones there that weren't runners picking up the uh, point and figure sheets. Hey, Walter, do you still or did you or do you still do uh, charts by hand? No, I don't do charts anymore. I, I, uh, I, I'm retired, so I just watch them on the Internet. Well, back in the day, I mean, we had Helene Meisler in the room um, recently. She's a friend. And Helene, who, you know, trained at the knee of Justin Mamis, um, to this day, she insists on charting by hand because it gives her a good feel for what's going on. Um, when you were uh, in business, uh, professionally, full time, would you uh, would you do charts by hand or, or didn't see a need to? No, I absolutely did. I agree 100% with her. I think you get a lot more uh, looking at doing a chart by hand because you have to actually think about it when you plot the darn thing rather than just flipping by it on a screen. Right. No, that's that's that couldn't agree with. So let's go to a few more questions. I want to bring in uh, my good friend Dave Nikoski, and then we'll go to Guy Sarandilo. Dave, good to see you. What's up, Dave? Hi, George. How you doing? Doing, doing well. You got a question for uh, Walter? I do. Um, Walter, I, I think one of the things that uh, that I'm concerned about in talking about the crowded trade, I completely agree with you. And I've been a te- technician for almost 30 years. Um, you know, one of the one of the things that I guess I'm concerned about that I don't see other technicians talk about it. And I've discussed it on these calls uh, in the past is, you know, the, the dollar strength. Um, everyone obviously crowded trade, you know, in, in 2002, you know, we had a, uh, a collapse of the dollar and it, it you know, it, it put pressure on the market. Um, it... Hey, Dave, we lost you here. Dave. So while we're waiting for Dave to come back, hey, Guy, Guy Sarandula, good to see you, Guy. Are you there? We'll go up. Well, yes. We'll, yeah, well, Dave, Dave will come back. Guy, what, what's up, man? Good to hear from you. No, good to hear from you, uh, too, George. I just want to say, uh, re- oh, Dave's back on. You want Dave, you could continue if you want. Go ahead. Dave, are you there? Yeah. Did Did I get cut off? Yeah, no, yeah, we lost you for a minute. Okay. We, we, we totally lost All you. right. Somehow my, my mic got shut off. Um, I'm more concerned about the U.S. dollar if it were to decline, you know, if and I'm looking back at 2002, you know, after the, the, the internet bubble, um, you know, we broke the uptrend and you had a repatriation of funds out of the U S to take advantage of much cheaper, uh, markets around the world, you know, which, uh, sent the emerging markets up significantly. The other, the other, um, question I have that, that I, I don't know how to, uh, look at it, but you know, you're seeing that Europe can't produce anything. I mean, Romania just shut down an aluminum smelter plant um, due to the high cost of energy, net gas at seven and a half times what the U.S. is. You know, we, we are we are taking out players from the market that are that are contributing um, product, and you know, with 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 that, you're you're through that attrition. You're certainly um, you know, having companies like Alum, Alum you know, Alcoa, for instance, uh, is going to be in a better, better position with much, much less uh, energy costs associated with them. Um, and again, you're just having attrition in, in all of the smelter industries. Uh, you know, I don't think Germany can produce an automobile at all, um, in my opinion. Just want to see what your thoughts are on that. <laughs> Well, I think that's what I meant. What I meant it was I was trying to allude to when I said that the problem is that the, the market, uh, if the risk in the market is that something breaks, and I would think that something breaks with the currency, the 
from the chatter uh, uh, that I hear, I would, I would suspect, I, I would suspect maybe it's Japan that uh, trying to keep their bond at uh, twenty-five basis points, and you know they they're printing money while everybody else is tightening, and that uh, uh, apparently that there's a big carry trade with the yen, <coughs> and if that if that blows up, whether it takes a couple hedge funds with them. Okay. Thanks. Uh, Guy, over to you. Hey, hi, George. Um, I just want to say quick, uh, first of all, quick hello to Walter. I don't know if you remember me, but I work with uh, Bob Hill at Fidelity from 89 to 2002. So, we've, yeah, we've had really? many. Uh, yeah, no, you hearing your voice is phenomenal. I used to read your your letter, letter every week a lot, as, as well as Stan's and a bunch of other old timers. But, you know, God bless him. Glad you're still around and contributing to uh, – to our world of technical analysis, but some of the bullet points you you made were so spot on. Where you know talking about moving averages and uh, what's important to to investors, I think you know people should. Well, people have to do what they have to do, but you know your point of avoiding the basically the noise and keep keep focus on the big picture is so important because you know even there where I worked with people that are managing. You know, anywhere from a billion to 50, 60 billion, 70 billion back then, you're, you know, they're, they're moving a battleship in a harbor. So a lot of this noise gyration that, you know, people are talking about, whether it be some questions that, you know, George may get here or you see on Twitter, it, it's looking at the trees and not really the forest. So I think where you're coming from is where I came from and keeping the big picture in mind is always important. So I just want to say thanks for stressing that kind of stuff. My one thing I'm curious about, like when I worked at Fidelity, I had uh, three computers and then one spark station, and I used machines to help screen and filter through things. And and as you know, Mr. Johnson was really high on uh, on technology, and uh, not that we threw money around like it was you know water, but at no expense that he he always provided us with the best technology we had and the resources to even bring in people like you to speak with. So I use machines to kind of filter through things and some of the, let's keep it simple. So, you know, show me all stocks that are above a rise in 200 day, you know, as an example. So we use machines to, to filter large baskets to come up with themes and ideas. I'm curious, how, how did you do it where you were doing charts maybe by hand? I'm not sure where you, when you know over to computer uh, work, but you know, there's strength in numbers. So one, one or two stocks as an example in the semiconductor space that are breaking out doing well, is not an important information unless you see 40, 50% of the stocks doing that. So there's strength in numbers. So I'm just curious how you did it back then. And if there's anything you could share with people that would help them now. I just did it by brute force that I wasn't into computers and stuff and I didn't get that much into individual stocks. So, you know, I just looked for, for things that were interesting, but uh, one of the, one of the things I relied very heavily on were the Zawag performance ratings, which I thought were terrific. And unfortunately that uh, Marty, uh, who is one of the greatest technicians ever, uh, start, stopped doing it, and it broke my heart when he did because it was uh, a great source of ideas. Mm. Okay. So, so basically what I'm saying is I let Marty do the screening. Sure. Great, thanks. Thanks, Guy. That's terrific. Uh, let's go now to um, Michelle. Michelle, you have a question for Walter? The floor is yours. Michelle, please unmute yourself. 
Oh yeah. Um, thank you, thank you, George, and thanks, uh, Water. Uh, so I have a question about um, I think the fat um Chris uh Waller's uh spoke last week, and he talked about after another seventy five basis point hike, um, we're already at a neutral rate. So I think that's probably got market excited. Think we're um towards the end of the hike. Um, so if like fat pause after this month um would that be considered a major pivot um given you know no michelle michelle Michelle, let me me take that question walter no michelle um that's to me that's just no that's not a pivot at all it's just maybe a pause along the way um and again i i um a lot of people like to talk aimlessly about the Fed and speculate about the Fed. Nobody knows what the Fed's doing. I don't think the Fed knows what the Fed is doing. And so in these rooms, we generally don't like to talk about the Fed. It's just a complete freaking waste of time. So, um, and more importantly, what's in, from the way I look at it, what's important is not the news, but the reaction to the news. So, yeah, maybe people are using that as an excuse to why they're getting excited now. And that's another thing, too, Walter, I wanted to ask you. It gets to a bigger question. Um, Walter, a lot of people, many people, especially nowadays, and this actually will dovetail with a question Jeff Garbaz asked earlier, they always want to put a, a reason or they want to attach meaning to a gyration. You know, they want to have a reason or excuse why the market goes up every day or down every day. And life is not so simple. And I just tend to fo- focus more on what the market is doing, the what as opposed to the why. Was it the case back in the day that people would try to micro analyze every wiggle and jiggle and try to place meaning on why the market's doing what it's doing? Or is that really more a manifestation of, um, you know, mainstream media and uh, social media nowadays, Walter? Well, I, I agree. Our, one of the things I said once was ours is not to reason why ours is just to sell and buy. You know, you don't know the reasons. I mean, somebody comes up with a reason. I always thought the easiest job in the, in the world was to write the the evening market comment. Uh, the market the market went up because um, be, because it was uh, thinking that we were in an inflation peak, or the market went down despite people thinking it was an inter- we were at the peak of inflation. I, you never know why why the market's going to do and. It, Frankly, I don't. I don't give a crap. You know, it's going to do what it's going to do, and why it does it, you don't know. And and I don't think you should really care. One of the other things I have said was, and I apologize to a couple of people on here, but if you want to watch CNBC like the pros do, turn the sound off. Love it, love it. Great. That's the best piece of advice all week. Love it. Absolutely love it. All right, let's move on here. So, Nitin, did you have a quick follow up, Nitin? Uh, yeah, I, I, I wanted to add on the uh, inflationary thing, what you said. So we no, have no, a Jupiter. No, 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 that's getting, okay. into, that's getting into the why. We're not going to talk about the why. Sorry, I'm not going to allow it. Okay. Uh, all right, let, let's go to, uh, this guy's got the best avatar on uh, in this space today. I want to go to Stan Druck's protege. Stan Druck, what's up? Yeah, uh, Walter, quick question. Do you, with your technical analysis, do you ever look at, uh, you know, the the non-commercial spec positioning? For instance, right now the SPX 
we're talking a, a negative Z score of about 2.75, which obviously the market is heavily um, short the SPX right now. So I'm just wondering if you've ever kind of combined and uh, combined those two uh, analysis. Uh, the answer, the answer is yes. I think you know when you, when you're at an extreme like that, like extremely crowded trades, re really work extremely well. And that uh, the short side got a little too easy for a while. And that uh, I think you'll probably uh, before this is over see everybody uh, go back to a more neutral position, and that will be the end. Thanks for that, Druck. So, Walter, a couple of uh, more quotes for you. This is Walter Deemer to Walter Deemer. Again, uh, probably self uh, requires no uh, elaboration, but if you want to react to it, um, and I don't know where you got this from. This is old Wall Street adage. You wrote, bull markets climb a wall of worry. Bear markets slide down a slope of hope. Doesn't that really kind of describe where we are now? Yes, sir. Where, and do you recall where this came from? No, uh, that's why I couldn't attribute it, because it's just something that everybody seems to say. Okay, here's another one. I've never heard this one. I've heard this one before, but I don't know who this guy is. So you'll have to explain. So this comes from John Hammerslough of Kaufman Allsburg. A bull market is when you check your clock, your stocks every day to see how much they went up. A bear market is when you don't bother to look anymore. <laughs> yeah. So who 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 is John Hammerslough? Uh, John, John, John did a lot of relative strength force uh, work for us at Putnam. He, he did relative strength uh, work on all our portfolios, and the, his relative strength was uh, required uh, required material in the quarterly performance uh, uh, portfolio reviews for the investment policy committee. And so he was mostly involved involved with that. But he also uh, mentioned that in passing one day, and that uh, I just. You know, I hear a lot of things and some of them stick with me. And I always try to give credit to whoever said it because they're a lot smarter than I am. Yeah. All right. Here's an important one. And I think he was he, he was one of the great all time greats. And I don't really know much about him, but uh, we're talking now about Stan Burge and his daughter uh, still runs their service. Uh, Stan was a Tucker Anthony. And uh, your quote here, always remember that we are dealing with probabilities and not certainties. Um, of course, that's 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 where we are. Although that may be lost on some investors when they listen to the charlatans like Kathy Wood, who you know seem to be pretty certain about everything. But could you talk a little bit about Stan Burge, who he was, what he did, how'd you know him, what'd you learn from him? As, as you said, he worked for uh, Tucker Anthony in uh, uh, in, uh, in in Providence, and his uh, uh, his weekly report was was always. <coughs> entitled Providence Market Comments, and I always wondered whether it was coming from Stan or from God when he said Providence. But, <laughs> yeah, okay. But, 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 but Stan uh, probably did more to integrate fundamentals and monetary with technical than with the market than anything else, because he'd come in with charts and he'd show a fundamental uh, thing, and then, but it would always be overlaid with the, uh, with, with the market itself. So he taught us, he taught people a lot about how fundamentals interact with the market, That's which, awesome. of course, which of course, mostly they don't. I mean, the market's a leading economic indicator. So you don't need the market, you know, to tell you, you don't need the economist to tell you what the market's going to do. You need the market to tell the economist what the economy's going to do. Uh, he would get into monetary stuff and things like that, but uh, he, he 
uh, he was one of, I would say he was one of the all-time uh, biggest influences on me. Uh, here's one more, and then we'll go to some more questions. This is from Gerald Loeb of E.F. Hutton in 1955. This is, this is one of my favorites. Just when you find the key to the market, they change the locks. Um, did you know Gerald Loeb, or is this just this is? Uh, did you ever work with Gerald? Or did you know Gerald? Didn't know when, when when I was first started in uh, getting interested in the stock market. The, there weren't a lot of books on it, and Gerald's was one. Actually, the quote was uh, toned down for the book. The, the, or the, the 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 quote I prefer is just when you find the key to the stock market, some son of a bitch comes along and changes the lock. <laughs> love it um all right let's go to some questions um let's go to big al hey big al what's up yes sir thank you guys for putting on this space um i sent you questions via dm but uh like how do institutions when you guys are running these hedge funds or you know main bank funds for fidelity and what have you like how do you pick by sale like are the old school fundamentals still in place for like p ratios is it momentum is it cyclicals are you guys using bollinger bands yeah, so so big al that's a pretty seemingly simple question it's a very complicated answer i think you have to have an integrated approach to investing i happen to use of course you want to find good fundamental stories where companies getting better and but then you have to look at the valuation and then you got to look at the technicals and you have to look at the um, you have to look at the macroeconomic regime that you're in. So it's not so simple. There is no one size fits all. So it's a you know it sounds like a simple question, but um, it's a very complicated answer. Uh, I will. So. Can I? Did somebody at Fidelity once told me uh, that at Fidelity we told we use fundamentals to tell us what to buy, and we use technicals to tell us when. That's very well put, Walter. That's extremely well put. Um, so Walter, who are some of the other, um, greats that you either worked with or learned from? Because again, these are people whose names most contemporary investors don't even know ever existed. Um, and I think there's a lot of wisdom that's been lost. And I think you have to understand, I'm so happy you're in this space today. I like hearing your views, but also more importantly, there's a tremendous amount of wisdom that's been lost. And it's sort of the elders that uh, you know pass the wisdom down through the ages. And this, again, this whole democratization of finance, where people just open up an E-Trade account and away they go, and you know, look at five-day moving averages or Fibonacci or God knows whatever, it doesn't work that way. You know it, and I know it. And so, Walter, who are some of the greats that you either worked with, or maybe you didn't work with, but you learned from? And 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 if they were around today, like you know, what would they be saying? And what are some of the lessons that stick in your mind that people kind of don't aren't really as aware as they should be that, you know, things that you would have learned from those that went before you? Well, before I, I do the list that I'll say that uh, Arch Crawford used to work at Merrill Lynch uh, and he was one of the admitted astrologers on wall street. There were a lot of people uh, who dabbled, uh, used astrology, but they wouldn't admit it. So they'd come up with cycles, but they wouldn't tell them that they were astronomical cycles rather than just, you know, mathematical cycles. Uh, and, and Arch and I were trying to come up with an idea because some of the greats were passing. 
and Arch being into astrology and stuff. And so what we thought we might do is put out a market letter where we channeled some of the greats that were no longer with us. So like Joe Granville, we could we could have a discussion with Joe Granville and publish it. And if if it turned out wrong, well, you know, you couldn't sue him because you know, he's in heaven or he's in chart room in the sky or whatever. Uh, but the chart room in the sky. Love it. Keep going. The big, the big chart room in the sky. But you know, I would, I, I would mention Bob Farrell at Merrill Lynch, who you know I worked for, and uh, he was a big contrarian, and uh, you know he was big into market psychology and leaning into contrary uh, uh, opinion. Uh, I would mention uh, Marty Zweig, uh, who one of the greats of all time, and he has a book called Winning on Wall Street, and it's kind of out of date, but you know it's a real classic. And Marty was great because. Marty used to share his research and that he would publish in Barron's and in the days when Barron's was a must reading on a Saturday that Marty had a lot of articles in there that were terrific. Uh, Stan Burge, we've already mentioned. Edson Gould, I worked uh, very closely with that. Uh, uh, Jerry side decided to uh, really get closely involved with uh, Edson Gould so that the people that, that, that there were three uh, technicians at uh, Manhattan Fund in those days, and we all spent one afternoon a week down in Edson's office where he was teaching what he knows. Stan Weinstein, of course, that, uh, you know, his book is out of date, but it's, it, you know, it's, it's an old book, but it's still classic. I mean, he had some great things. And I'm also going to mention somebody, George, that I think you know, Bill Doan. Uh, he ran the chart room at Fidelity, and he it was fun because uh, Bill and Bill Diani from uh, Wellington, who was passed, and I used to get together quite often, swap notes, you know, so, such and so just came through town. What do you think of him? Oh, he was a real crazy guy or something. Or so, so just came through town. What do you think? Oh, he's really interesting and stuff. So we would swap notes. And then, of course, how the fund managers were, were, were uh, harassing us all the time. It's, it's, the fund managers never made mistakes. It was always the technical department or the trading room that made the mistakes. So that uh, Bill Doan and Bill Diani and I would commiserate with each other and there, there, there was a standing joke in those days that uh, in those days to run a technical department in a Boston institution you had all you needed was the initials WD right hey uh, Guy and or Dave Nikoski um, what are your memories of Bill Dunn um, well I know that him and my father worked very close with each other and so my, you know, I worked with my father for many years. Um, I've heard nothing but great things about Bill. I've met him personally a couple of times. Um, just a great guy. I mean, really understood, you know, technicals. And I, you know, certainly in my discussions with him, I, you know, took away uh, always much better off and much more informed by, you know, what, how he could read the market. Yeah. Guy? Yeah, George. I, yeah, I could comment. Um, so he, yeah, he hired Bob Hill, who hired me at Fidelity. So Bill was involved with the uh, Market Technicians Association, and and he would be the person that um, helped line up and um, uh, bringing these people uh, that would uh, be vendors of, let's say, technical tools or books or whatever, you know, uh, all these types of things at, at the forum. And he'd, he'd be the one that's always around with the camera, taking pictures of all the attendees and stuff like that so i have great memories of discussion with him you know he he lived i believe it was concord 
Um, we, we got together for lunch every, every now and then. And he also did a, uh, a one pager, uh, uh, like a, a, a small newsletter. He, he's a big, a big fan of uh, bases. So similar to like a, a Steve Chauvin, who's another old timer. I'm not sure if he's still alive or not. But John Roke, were, John Roke uh, might know because he worked with uh, Chauvin way back when. But so for Bill Doan, he's a big base lover. You would always uh, try to highlight stocks that were forming bases that were a multi, multi-month period. And uh, yeah, he was a great guy. That's awesome. Uh, yeah, he was he was he was working on a book, and unfortunately, he didn't uh, set it up well, so that uh, it couldn't be uh, printed. It was called Bill Doan's Big Big Basis, and his family and some other people are trying to figure out how we can get the darn thing published. But it was Bill Doan's Big Basis, and I'll share one Bill Doan story that Fidelity uh, opened a, a new chart room, and that they had an open house for the technical people in town. And so we go into the new chart room and there's Bill Doan's office with a big piece of brown wrapping paper over one chart. And we all wondered what he had covered up. And that, uh, Dick Cohen, who worked for him, says, I don't know why he covered that, that one up. That's just his airline chart. <laughs> That's awesome. Hey, um, Walter, you mentioned uh, Joe Granville. Joe Granville is probably a name that's not known to most uh uh, new investors in the last few years. Um, did you know Joe Granville? Or you just knew of him? Could you tell us a little bit about him? Just knew of him. He was flamboyant. He had a great track record some of the time, and then he sort of flamed out. He wrote a book. A lot of us uh, got involved in technical analysis in, in the 1960s. He wrote a book called A Daily Strategy for Stock Market Profit, which which was absolutely uh, hypnotic and that uh, most of us you know started out in technical analysis getting hooked on that that book but we always called him smoking joe granville because either he had a hot track record or he was so crazy he must have been smoking something wait 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 wait, wait. we're not talking about kathy oh sorry no oh, joe granville sorry sorry, sorry. <laughs> okay let's go to mg mg what's up mg hey george <clears throat> Hey, uh, I'm, I'm really enjoying this space. I don't have much to contribute except an anecdote that I think you guys might be interested in. And I apologize if it's already been mentioned. But um, when I was younger, I went to one of these conferences where there was a whole bunch of family office people. A lot of billionaires were around. And um, someone was mentioning, you know, a lot of, uh, you know, at the time I was a quant. And someone was mentioning a lot of, uh, you know, utilizing um astrology and whatnot. And I remember thinking, you know, I was a young guy, kind of hot-headed, very arrogant. You know, what is this bullshit? What are they talking about astrology for? And interestingly enough, this uh, this guy turns to me and, you know, I later found out he's like a very, you know, he was a, he was a very wealthy guy, he was a billionaire. And he turned to me and he goes, young man, I understand that there are no millionaires who believe in astrology but almost all the billionaires do. <laughs> and I always <laughs> remember that story. That's bad. I just wanted to kind of, intru- I just wanted to kind of include that in here. Uh, I, I, I would like to add here that, uh, that's a famous quote by uh, JP Morgan that millionaires don't need astrologer, but billionaires do need. So I'm a financial astrologer. I've been doing it for successfully for last 20 plus years. And uh, I worked with a large corporate in India. Looking at the chart of the corporate, I left the company because uh, based on my calculation, it was looking like that company is going for a bankruptcy. 
So uh, yes, uh, it, it's it's like astrology is a, like a language. So. MG, who was the speaker that, that said that comment to you about astrology, MG? I, I don't want to say, but he was, a, he was a very wealthy billionaire. He was over 60 at the time. So, you know, I don't even know if he's alive now. He would be close to 80 now. That's great. That's great. Appreciate that. All right. Let's I'm go. Gonna, let, uh, so I'm going to share, share, share something for you, for you too. And that is, the, most people don't know this, but Edson Gould was a, dabbled in astrology. He didn't publicly admit it. Edson Gould was one of the great uh, early technicians. Right. Um, all right. Let's go to uh, let's go to Yaba. Yaba. Yeah. Hi. Thanks, George. Walter, I worked with uh, Marty Zweig back in the mid '80s. Um, that fateful uh, Wall Street Week uh, Friday before Black Monday of '87. And looking now, um, you know, we've discussed bread thrusts don't fight the Fed, et cetera. But at the environment that we're in now, um, would you just take a shot at like maybe some of, um, and not to specifically focus on Marty, but arrest his soul, but um, some of the most relevant um, rules that you think are pertinent to the current wacko environment? Because, I, you know, this <laughs> so many aspects have changed from that time and then so many of the rules stay the same so i just like to get your thoughts on that thank you very much well i i would say that uh marty's classics don't fight the fed and don't fight the tape are every much as applicable now as they ever have been uh he uses a breath thrust i had my own breath thrust that i developed in 1973 so i didn't really uh, pay much attention. They're very similar, but uh, as I say, if you look, if you Google breakaway momentum, it'll take you to the piece I wrote on uh, on on breakaway momentum. Uh, he did uh, he did so much work on, uh, on on indicators, and then bless his heart, he shared them with everybody. That uh, he, you know, he he was he was monumental. Yeah, we built the uh, the newsletter, you know, and it's funny. It was a uh, the rating for the newsletter was a bell curve distribution, and the I remember the two, it was written in PL1. <clears throat> I was a programmer, blah, blah, blah at the time. But um, the two most important, this is really funny, two most heavily weighted criteria in that were number one was the value line rating and number two were earnings surprises. And I think, <laughs> but the value line rating was the highest uh, and he made millions and millions and millions with, uh, you know, that selling that newsletter. Yeah, and I happen to think, I'm having to think the value line rating includes relative strength. I can never prove it, but it has to. That's great. That's great. Hey, hey, Walter, um, you know, really there aren't a whole lot of technicians on the street anymore, certainly on the sell side. Um, Why do you think that is the case and what impact has that had on market structure? Does it make it easier for you now because there are fewer technicians out there or does it make it more difficult because – fewer people are following the quote unquote, you know, rules of the road. I mean, so speak to why, so first question, why are there so few technicians on the sales side now, Walter? Because uh, every, every, all the money managers think they're uh, uh, technicians and, and a couple of them are good ones, uh, like Mike who is on here, but uh, most of them aren't, they just think they are. So they don't think they need uh uh, cell side, cell side uh, research. 
Got it. Got it. Hey, Ace, is, uh, you've been pretty quiet. you have any questions for uh, Walter? Yeah. <clears throat> Hi, Walter. Nice to meet you. <clears throat> Excuse me. Thanks, George. Um, you know, Walter, the things that, that come to mind for me, you know, from when I first started uh, doing this stuff 30-some-odd years ago, is, you know, the, the actual, the nature of the market is just so different today. I mean, when I started, I think we had, you know, many thousands more stocks than are publicly traded than today, uh, given all the mergers and acquisitions and so on and so forth. Um, you know, when I started, you know, um, not everything was tech, Right. I mean, when I look at the quote unquote markets now, it's almost like, you know, I mean, what Wall Street and Silicon Valley did in, the, in this last cycle was they figured out a trick, call everything a tech stock and give it a tech multiple. I mean, look at Tesla, look at Beyond Meat, <laughs> look at Wayfair, which is a furniture retailer, look at uh, Carvana, which is a used car sales company. They're all tech stocks with tech multiple. And, and then, and then you have this, what almost looks to be permanent capital in, in the ETFs and in the 401ks and stuff. And I'm just curious, do you think that these kinds of things, uh, may have had a role or a tendency to distort, um, you know, what, you know, what, what us old school price discovery guys, you know, used to think, you know, was the market? Um, or it's all just a market uh, hypo- you know, uh, efficient market hypothesis, and it just is what it is. Thank you very much for your time. Uh, thanks. I would just be, be uh, uh, I would, I would just say that I don't think there's an efficient market. I don't think there is any efficient market. I don't think there's any permanent money in ETFs. One of the big worries that people have is that uh, something, something's going to someday, something's going to happen that won't. Want investors to, want the public to take their money out of the ETFs rather than keep putting it in. Uh, uh, so I don't I don't think it's, it's it's changed that much. But I mean, Wall Street has always been good at putting lipstick on pigs, and then you know you just mentioned a couple of pigs that have lipstick on. Yeah, it's just uh, it's always like it's always like it's almost like the fashion business. Um, a couple of names that come to come to I just thought of one of the listeners uh, threw out my he threw one name at me and two more came to mind. Um, did you know Ralph Block? Uh, not well. Okay. How about Ralph Acampura? I know him fairly well. And uh, John Mendelson? Knew him. Worked very closely with him. Is he, uh, would, could you talk at all about uh, what Ralph Acampura or John Mendelson were uh, no, noted for? Or what well, they did. I, I don't want to get into Ralph too much, but most people most people think he's more of a contrary uh, indicator than anything else, and I'm not sure whether that's correct or not. But that's sort of the reputation. Yeah. Uh, and 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 John Mendelson, uh, uh, he he had some very interesting things, and he wrote. Uh, he was he, he had probably the first X-rated market letter that I know of. He had a diaper indicator and stuff like that. He said that. <laughs> okay, yeah, yeah. He he said when the market's going down, and then you know all of a sudden people when when they people started buying diapers, uh, you know the everybody got excited. And they started buying diapers, and that was getting near the bottom. That's funny. That's that, that's Ralph Akampura. 
that was uh, yeah, Ralph. Ralph was. Uh, 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 I didn't really work that closely with Ralph. Okay, I got, it. I got, it. I got. It. That's that's fine. Um, awesome. So uh, we're gonna go to Phoenix. Phoenix Fire. Um, hold on a second here. Uh, speaker. So Phoenix is coming up to stage again. We're speaking with Walter Deemer. At, uh, Walter, how many years were you in the business? I mean, fifty odd years. How many? How many years was your career, Walter? Started started working in nineteen sixty three. From Rolling started following the stock market more closely in nineteen closely in nineteen sixty one. Wow, <laughs> that's awesome. Hey, Phoenix, you got a question for Walter? Phoenix, hi. meet yourself, please. Yep. Hi, can you hear me? Um, well, th- yeah, yeah, we got thank it. Thank you yep. very much for this. I just wanted to get your insights on how similar today's environment is to the Nifty 50s, and if you could really describe to us when the Nifty 50s collapsed, uh, since you lived through that, and what lessons we could take from that. Well, the Nifty 50 really didn't collapse so much. It's just, you know, they got too high and then they started down and then they kept eroding away for a year after year after year that the multiples were high and then they started eroding and McDonald's was 75 times earnings then it was 50 times earnings then it was 40 times earnings then it was 30 times earnings and so on. And it, it, it was, it was it sandpaper. And the, the reason Putnam was selling McDonald's at eight times earnings was because it was underperforming. So it's it's a long drawn out process. You get uh, you know a period of great uh, you know it was a very crowded trade. It was the only thing that was working, and it just took years to unwind. And is there and and, and, and and I will say that the similarities between the Fang stocks and the Nifty Fifty stocks are too too uh, uh, glaring to ignore. That's that's really interesting. By the way, I see there are a couple of people who want to raise their hand and want to speak. Uh, if I don't know you and I haven't put you up on stage, uh, please send me a direct message with your question. Um, I'm trying to limit the scope of the questions. Uh, uh, Walter, I have a question from another listener. Um, did you know a uh, Harry Laubscher? He was a chartist at, at uh, Payne Weber. Didn't know him well. Didn't know him well. Okay. Um I knew, I knew, I knew everybody because I was a founding member of the MTA. So that and and, uh, and we ran the uh, uh, we ran the uh, uh, the uh, admissions uh, uh, thing out of out of Putnam and Boston. So when they came in the MTA, their application crossed my desk. Yeah. Hey, but uh, what's another question, Walter? Um, what do you make of Elliott Wave? And did, did you know Robert Prechter? I knew Bob Prechter very well. Uh, Bob is uh, a big rock and roll, early rock and roll enthusiast, as I am, as Marty Zwag was, and as Stan Weinstein is. And uh, we used to have fun uh, at the MTA meetings, uh, the, the seminars. We'd get together afterwards in the bar, and we start, you know, talking about, you know, quizzing each other about early, early rock and roll. But my thing on Elliot, I, I lost all interest in Elliott Wave. I think it's great in hindsight, but uh, I was at a conference one time. Some guy said, spends 10 minutes you know, working out this Elliott Wave pattern and everything like that, and it's bullish. And that's how I go through all that. And he says, but now let me tell you about the alternate account. And he spends another 10 minutes going through another account that's bearish. And I said, what the hell good is this? <laughs> so, okay, so that leads to the question. I'm sorry. I think Thornton's in the room, so I can ask it. What do you make of DeMarc? <laughs> he he seems to, he, 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 I don't understand it, but he seems to be an absolute genius. 
Okay, I'm not okay. You answered the question. I'm not going to press it. I, I understand you. Okay, another question from another listener. Did you ever work or know, with or did you know a George Lindsay? Uh, knew of him, didn't know him well, but uh, he was he was viewed he was viewed generally as sort of being on the fringe, but he was right uh, a lot more often than he was wrong. So, so you, you didn't. Re- so the question was, if you had a view on his book, did you read his book? No, I did not. Okay, and then one of the Bibles of um, that people frequently refer to. Um, what's your take on uh, Edwards and McGee? Uh, well, number one, that uh, somebody took it over after about the sixth edition. So you, 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 the, the later editions uh, are not pure Edwards and McGee. If you want to do Edwards and McGee, make sure you get an old copy that's Edwards and McGee and doesn't have uh, some other guy editing it or something like that. Uh, I I kind of uh, prefer Bill Jiler's book, J-I-L-E-R. He ran Trend Lines, which we all subscribed to back in the day. And he wrote about a book about how charts can help you in the stock market. And I think it's a much uh, better uh, explanation of what's going on. You said Bill Jaller, just for the people in the room, J-A-I-L-E-R, is that right? No, J-I-L-E-R. Bill J-I-L-E-R. Okay. All right. That's that. That's straight helpful. And then I want to ask you about Justin Mamis and then his disciple, Stan Weinstein. Stan's still around. Um, any? Did you know those guys and your take? Yeah, knew, knew Justin well and uh, and know Helene well, and I, I think they're both brilliant. Right. Got it. Um, how about Tom McClellan? Uh, know him well. He he does some amazing work. Uh, the only the only caveat I have was I'm a hedge fund manager in uh, Los Angeles once told me the only thing you got to be careful with Tom is he tries to correlate strange things together and that uh, you know I don't always understand the correlation but you know the pure technical work is just awesome. Right. Did you ever know a guy? I didn't overlap. I was overlapped with him, but I've never heard of him, and he's got quite a Twitter following. And I think he's really kind of wrong way, Louie. Um, did you ever know a guy, David Hunter, from Fidelity? Did not. Okay. That's 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 fair. That's fair. Um, and how about, oh, yeah, Ian Notley and John Brooks? Ian Notley was, <coughs> I loved his stuff. And it, uh, it it took us a while because he he had a uh, he had curves that uh, he had a great ma- uh, machine in the old days that were uh, uh, displayed charts with timing curves, and he wouldn't tell us anybody what they were. And somebody finally, much later, figured out they were Coppock curves uh, on various time frames. But he did wonderful stuff. Do you do you like do you do you are you uh, maybe you can explain? Do, are you uh, do you have time for Coppock curves? Is that something you pay attention to? Uh, not really, but it's. I think it's uh, basically comparing a, a, a eleven month moving average to a fourteen month moving average. So it's a long term timing signals. Right. Hey, slightly different question. How has the and again, this is probably going to get more into the why as opposed to the what. But you know, the narrative, not the narrative. You know, ever since the Fed's been so active in markets, pumping so much money into the markets, it's changed the character of the markets, the nature of the markets. It kind of reminds you of like you know we're all. When we were kids and we played pinball machines back in the day, we had mechanical pinball machines. If you didn't like the way the ball was rolling, you kind of picked it up and tilted it or banged it or whatever. And that's kind of to my way of thinking what the Fed has done with markets. Um, has the composition of the markets, the way the Fed's been manipulating things or been so active with their monetary policy, has that changed the way 
you look at markets or the way you do your analysis? Well, you know, I think the, the Fed changes the underlying name name of the game. I mean, the, the fact that they were pumping money into the into the economy was obviously one of the things that made the market go up. So, you know, don't fight the Fed. Don't fight the Fed. Yeah, no, that's that's for darn sure. Um, all right, well, listen, Walter, this has been absolutely absolutely uh, phenomenal. I can't thank you enough for this. Um, Can I just please one thing about not fighting the Fed? The Fed, the Fed apparently wanted was happy to have two things. If two things happened, number one, if the stock market went down, and number two, if housing the, the housing prices went down, and I think they're getting their wish on both sides. Exactly. What so, possibly, so don't fight the Fed. Yeah, exactly. What could possibly go wrong? Listen, this has been phenomenal, Walter. I really, truly hope you'll come back. This has been phenomenal. Your voice needs to be heard in the public square. There's just so much, you know, those who've gone before us have, have uh, the greats, the true greats. And unfortunately, their, their messages have been getting drowned out by social media and, 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 and not participating uh, in, 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 as such. And I'm glad that you, uh, you know, you're now a, you're, you're a Twitter groupie, which is awesome. And, you know, we've had we had Stan Weinstein in here a few months ago. I remember you said you listened to Space, really liked it. You know, we had Dennis Gartman. Um, I mean, Dave Nikoski has been in here. Guy's been in here. Um, John Roke. I mean, a lot of the chartists, you know, Jeff Garbaz. I mean, it just the list goes on and on and on. And I think I think you're really you're, you're helping so many people, Walter. Um, you may not realize it, but passing on the tradition of uh, the greats that went before us, the, the, your message needs to be heard. I urge everyone to follow Walter. Uh, also, um, he's got a book. Uh, again, I'm not getting any kickbacks here, but it's a brilliant little delightful read. It's on Amazon. It's got a lot of quotes. and You'll sound smart when you're at a cocktail party talking stocks with other people. Um, and so I, I frequently tweet out your quotes. People are like, ooh, that's, that sounds nice. And by the way, again, if anyone's interested, um, I, have a, I put a slide deck together recently on you know, various charts that are of interest to me. Please contact me. Uh, DM me, but send me your email address so I can send it to you if you're interested. So with that, Walter, again, I want to thank you. This has been awesome. Thank you, Dave Mikoski. Thanks, Guy Serendulo. Thanks, Shrub. Thanks, Three Aces and all the others. This has been terrific. And uh, we'll see you again next week. Thanks, everybody. Thanks, George. Take care, Walter. Bye.